Bow our heads one more time as we ask the Lord's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you meet with us as we gather together on the Lord's Day. We pray that we would not forget that we meet not only with each other, but with you, that you are here. So, Lord, pour out your Spirit on us. May we commune with Christ. May we understand the word that your Spirit has breathed out. May we understand how it applies to us. And may we not be hearers of your word only who would deceive ourselves, but may we be doers of your word. Soften our hearts. Change our inclinations. Would you tell us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth? Make us hungry for your word. Make us hungry for the bread of life. Increase our appetites. Make it taste sweet to us as honey. Father, you say in your word that you are watching over your word to perform it. So watch over your word now, we pray. Speak it to us. Your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. When we take a long, honest look at the world around us, we sometimes have trouble coming to grips with what we cannot label as anything other than senselessness. Whether it's the circular patterns of nature, the emptiness of work and pleasure, the abuse of power, the sorrow of loneliness. Reality bites in many ways. What we don't often realize, though, is that we ourselves are part of that problem. For some of us, our knee-jerk reaction to the senselessness that we see out there is to come in here to find answers, which is a really good instinct. It's like Psalm 73 where the Christian sees sinful people prospering and he doesn't know how to make sense of it until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. But surely the absurdity and senselessness of the world could not infect God's church. Could it? We want to assume that the churches are immune to the dangers of absurdity and senselessness out there. But this morning in Ecclesiastes 5, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 5, God himself cautions us that even our worship can become absurd if we are not careful. Even our worship can become absurd if we are not careful. There are five ways in particular that we need to be careful in public worship. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. 
When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Even our worship can become absurd if we are not careful. First way we need to be careful in public worship is we need to be careful in our preparations for public worship. We need to be careful in our preparations. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God or literally keep watch over your feet as you walk to the house of God. So this seems more to do with approaching corporate worship before you get here rather than participating in it once you do get here. It does apply to Sunday morning, but it also applies to the whole previous week, to how I've lived my life at home, in the den, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, how I've conducted myself with my wife and my children, my friends. It applies to how I've treated people in my neighborhood and on the road in front of me who probably should have run the yellow light so that I could also run the yellow light, but they didn't, and they stopped me. How do I treat him when I'm in a hurry? That's part of guarding your steps on the way to the house of God. Those kinds of things. It applies to my testimony at work, in the cubicle, in the boardroom, at the water cooler. It applies to my entertainments, my habits. It applies to my personal Bible reading and prayer life. It applies to leaving myself margin from my callings in the world to enable myself to engage in my heavenly calling of pursuing Christ and communion with Him day to day. Am I ready to come here on Sundays? Are you ready? Have I guarded my steps? Have I been careful to walk in the ways of the Lord? Or am I walking in ways of worldliness and secret, unrepented sins that I'm just excusing myself for? Those are some good diagnostic questions to ask yourself week to week. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is what reduces worship to absurdity. All through Ecclesiastes, we are seeing the absurdity out there. And now, the writer confronts us, it's not just out there. It's in here. You don't just see absurdity Monday to Saturday. You see it, and you contribute to it on Sunday, if you're not careful. And so we guard our steps on the way to church in at least three areas of preparation. Still another first point. We prepare in our actions. God said to Israel, Isaiah 1.12, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain, absurd, senseless, worthless offerings. Vanity in worship. What made them vain? Were the lyrics not good enough in the songs? Was the preaching not biblical enough? No, that wasn't it. They weren't ready. They were acting in bad ways the weeks before. I cannot endure iniquity, sin, unconfessed, unrepented sin, and the solemn assembly. That is what makes worship absurd In God's eyes, our unconfessed, unrepented sin makes my singing 
vain at church. Not just to other people, not just to myself, to God. He hears us singing, but he remembers the sins we have committed and not confessed or repented. And he thinks, what, what are you doing? Do you think I didn't see that? Do you think I don't remember that? Do you think I know that you haven't confessed that and repented of it? That's off key to God. It is senseless to God if we come here to worship Him while we excuse devotional indifference to Him at home, pay no attention to His Word at home, and then come here and think, oh, this, is, this will be enough. Or while we're careless about obeying Him when no one else is watching, God sees, God knows, and He cares how we walk before Him while we, were, we are on our way to His house Monday through Saturday. He knows what you said. He knows what you did. He knows what you looked at. He knows what you felt and thought and wanted and indulged. He knows. And then He hears you here. And He sees how you present yourself to others. Look carefully then, Paul says, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's guarding your steps. And this goes not only for our actions, but our attitudes as well, as we prepare for the Lord's Day each week. God tells Moses in Exodus 3, 5, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is not come to church barefoot. But friend, do you respect God's holiness? You should not think to come here in just any frame of heart with resentments against God or indifference to His character or His commands or with a loveless attitude towards your neighbor, whether it's a Christian and a member of this church or your neighbor in your neighborhood. Without recognizing the great difference between God's transcendence as our Creator and our own created finitude as His creature's I would dare say some of us prepare more to meet a boss at work than to meet our God at church. Think about it. We should also care for our attitudes towards each other in our Preparation for corporate worship. Jesus says, Matthew 5, If I know a brother has something against me, I should go first and be reconciled to him and then come to worship. Otherwise, our gatheredness in worship is a charade. It's just gatheredness in appearance, but not in heart. It's a mirage. In Matthew 18, If someone has sinned against me, and I know they are committing serious, outward, unrepented sin against God, I should go to them privately. You see how either way, whether you apply Matthew 5 or Matthew 18, it's always my responsibility to initiate reconciliation, whether I'm the one sinned against or whether I'm the one who has sinned. It's your responsibility, Christian, either way. If there's sin in one of your relationships, whether you committed it or it was committed against you, you got to go or you got to forbear it, if that would be best for the other person's good. Otherwise, our worship becomes absurd to God. We gather here, we sing to Him, and yet our relationships are not reconciled? What is that? God sees that kind of discrepancy. So we have to guard our attitudes towards God and towards one another if our worship is not to become absurd in God's eyes. But also our assumptions, our actions, our attitudes, now our assumptions. When you come to the house of God, the gathered congregation, your assumptions 
are driving your expectations. Do you realize that? You expect things because you assume things. But you have you ever stopped to think, maybe my assumptions are wrong. And so maybe the expectations that I cherish and hold tightly are wrong because they're based on wrong assumptions. Many people come to church assuming that their own assumptions about God, themselves, and the world should simply be validated. Now, it is true we should encourage and be encouraged at church. We should point out evidences of grace and godliness and growth in each other's lives. We should confirm to each other that we're not crazy for loving Jesus, for trusting the gospel of forgiveness of sins through faith and repentance in His name. We should be encouraged that we're right to think and preach that hell is real, that it's deserved by all sinners, including us, and that the only way to avoid God's righteous judgment is to turn from our own assumptions and trust in Jesus. We should encourage each other when we see the fruit of the Spirit flourishing in each other's lives. That's good. There is affirmation to be had and to be offered here. But we are not here simply to confirm all of our assumptions about God and the Bible and the church. Think about that. Christianity is a religion of revelation. Basic. God is an invisible God which means we cannot assume our way into his presence or pleasure. If you want to know this invisible God, he has to initiate revealing himself to you, or you will never know him because he is invisible. And you are sinful, and your assumptions are misguiding your expectations of who you even think he ought to be. But if we cannot even know this God, unless He reveals Himself, then how can we please Him in worship unless He reveals what it is that does please Him in worship? You see? It's a religion of revelation from beginning to end. God has to reveal Himself, both in His being and in His expectations and in His pleasures and in His commands. If God must reveal himself simply for me to know him as he is, then God must also reveal what kind of worship pleases him if we are to worship him in a way that he accepts. Is that, that's exactly why Nadab and Abihu died. We didn't read it, but at the end of Leviticus 9, the people do it rightly. They come, they offer the right sacrifices, God comes down, he consumes the sacrifices, the end of Leviticus 9 says. But it's a great contrast, a very clear contrast, if you're reading straight through Leviticus, chapter 9 to chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu come, they offer strange fire to the Lord, and what does God consume? Not the sacrifice, he consumes them. He's telling us that he takes his worship seriously. He will be honored. He will be respected. This passage is one of the many biblical reasons for how we do what we do here on Sundays. We read God's Word. We sing God's Word. We preach God's Word. We pray God's Word. And we see God's Word only in Christ-ordained ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is one of the most important ways we guard our steps As we go to the house of God, we guard our steps by staying within the guardrails of Scripture in our methods and expectations for public worship. This very phrase, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, argues for what the Puritans would would have called the doctrine of carefulness in worship. And that doctrine of carefulness is opposite of the modern doctrine or just practice or assumption of casualness. In worship. Friend, are you careful or are you casual when you come to church? This moment right here is more important than the job interview you had earlier in the week or the presentation you made at work 
or the important company you hosted last week. It's more important than that occasion. We are meeting with the living God. So what have you done to prepare for this moment? And if you have done nothing to prepare for this moment, it is not a surprise to me that you get nothing out of it. Perhaps you do not get much out of public worship because you do not engage much in private worship. Perhaps you've not guarded your steps on the way here. Read the passage to be preached ahead of time. We provide for you a sermon card that lists out all the sermons by date and by text. I would love to see us make the order of worship available midweek in an email or on the website so that everybody can prepare their hearts for the whole service, the readings, the songs, as well as the sermon text. That would be good. That would be a way to guard your steps here. That's a way to prepare for worship. And, now, I know I'm going to step on a few toes here. Just know that I love you, okay? (laughs) Get here early. Get here early. When you come to church, don't show up 10 minutes late. Show up 10 minutes early. You don't walk in late for important appointments at work, do you? Tardiness at work shows your employer you're not taking your job seriously. What do you think tardiness at corporate worship communicates to your God? He's gracious. He's patient. I know. We're gracious. We're patient. But it makes sense. If you're going to be careful in worship to show up carefully, You have an interview at work, you get there 15 minutes early. You have a presentation, you get there early. You have a team meeting, you're there. We are often even more punctual for leisure opportunities than we are for church. You ever notice this? If you have tickets to a game, if you're even just going to watch a game on TV, you get there for the tip-off or for the first pitch or for the kickoff. You go to a concert, you get there early to get your seat. You have dinner reservations, you get there five minutes early so they don't give your table to somebody else. You meet with God and His people and you show up ten minutes late? (laughs) Now you're pretty punctual as a congregation. So don't take this as a rebuke. Many of you are great at it. I just want you to excel still more and understand What are we doing here? Why should I be on time or early to church when I have a busy life? This is why. Because you're meeting with God. That's why. You're not just meeting with me. You're just meeting with the elders. You're just meeting with each other. You're meeting with God. Unless you just don't believe this stuff and you're coming here for other reasons. In which case, you got bigger fish to fry. Now, I get it. Satan works overtime on Sunday mornings in my house just like he does in yours. I don't mean to make you feel exposed. I mean, I feel exposed. (laughs) I have six children, and getting anywhere early feels like a miracle. I understand. I mean, that that makes me almost, when that happens, it almost makes me feel like I should be Pentecostal or charismatic. What just happened? We're on time. All of us are in the truck, and we're on time. But habits are important. Examples are important. Priorities are important. Guarding your steps as you go to the house of God is a command to us. That has to mean something. And we have to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Otherwise, we're deluding ourselves by coming here week after week. Secondly, we should be careful in our purposes in corporate worship. Careful in our purposes in corporate worship. Verse 1, to draw near... To listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Why are you coming here? What do you hope to either receive or contribute? What's your purpose in attending church? It's all too common for us to come to church so that we can make a good impression on others. I think of myself as a good person, so I want to make a good show. I want my presence here to say something good about myself. 
Or perhaps we draw near to make a show of our own emotion and devotion so that other people will look at us and consider us in some way. Or we draw near to God to tell Him something or show Him something about ourselves or prove ourselves to Him somehow. And maybe we attend to critique what we don't like about the church service or about other people and how they serve. But to draw near to listen, God's Word says, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, it would be a sacrifice of fools to come here and not to listen to God's Word through His people. How do we listen to God? By paying close attention to what He says in Scripture. This is why there's a lot of Scripture in our services. This is also why we structure many of our prayers on the Scripture reading that has just been read or on the text that's going to be preached. Did you notice how the prayer of confession was based on this text right here? There's a reason for that. It's taking God at His word and speaking His words back to Him so that we know that what we're praying is pleasing to Him because these are things that He has told us to do and to pray and to be about. There's things he's revealed about himself to us. So we are not just here to hear, though. You know, there's, there's this distinction between hearing and listening. It's possible to hear externally without listening internally. That happens in my home all the time. My words, my wife's words are heard many times, and they are not listened to. And how many times are God's words heard in the churches? But they're not listened to. We are here to listen. We're not just here to be hearers of the word. We are here to be doers of the word, as we will be learning in James on Wednesday nights. We come here to listen, to learn, to grow, not only in knowledge, but in understanding, and then in obedience to what we hear. We're not here to just pick and choose what we'd like to listen to and what we're just willing to let roll over our ears. Am I coming merely to hear these words as if they will change me just by the sound waves washing over me? Or am I coming to actively listen, to think on these things, to reckon with God and what He says to us and to repent myself rather than thinking, boy, there's a lot of people in this room that need to repent of this sermon right now. Or, man, I wish my neighbor heard this. Or, man, I wish that this guy at this other church would hear this sermon. I'm going to send it to him. I'm going to send him a link to this sermon. Well, what are you doing with it? Are you listening? Do I listen closely enough that I've taken something away to mention to others as a biblical conversation starter? Or am I wasting it so that it does me no good in building godly biblically-based conversations and friendships with each other. What then is the sacrifice of fools? Well, it's to come to church without having guarded your steps, with a purpose to talk more than to listen, to make an impression rather than God and His Word making its impression on us. It's to arrive without confessing and repenting beforehand. It's maintaining a double mind and heart about your sin, whether you really want to repent of it or not. It's neglecting to read and pray over the passage to be preached, or at least some passage ahead of time, while you expect to give someone a piece of your mind when you get here. A fool hopes to show that God is just lucky you're here. Because after all, you think you have a lot of better things to do with the Lord's day. I got a week to prepare for. I got other stuff. I got business. I got a... What do you got? You tell me, friend. What do you got that's more important than listening to God's word? And praying it back to him. The fool is so self-important that he thinks God should be satisfied that he's made two hours for worship out of the 160 hours of the week which God himself gave to you. And yet even these two hours, the fool resents, can't even sit through listening for two hours of the 168 of the week. 
Something's wrong if that's how you come to church. Or perhaps you are proud on your way to church as you think of others still asleep in their beds or mowing their lawns. Not me. I'm going to church. You view your attendance and giving here as making you better than others. You view your service as a merit badge for yourself and a privilege for others whenever you choose to give it. That is the sacrifice of fools, coming to church like that. God says, you may not. And when you do that, you have no idea what a fool you're making of yourself and what an absurdity your worship is to the living God who sees it. Vanity of vanities in worship. The absurdity of worshiping self under the pretense, the guise the projection of worshiping God. What's more, they do not know that they are doing evil. That is the danger of self-deceit in the middle of worship. These people who don't know that they're doing evil, these are not the people you see mowing their lawn on your way to church. These people are doing evil by the way they come to church without having guarded their steps. The Bible is warning us, the church people, against doing evil without even realizing it by the very unguarded way we come to church. Many people have no idea how they come off to God. And they don't care. They care how they come off to other people. So we cannot come here to think well of ourselves or to be thought well of by others. We cannot come only to hear what affirms us and to filter out the rest. We cannot only accept what we already assume. If that's why you come to church, you are wasting your time. Go back to bed. Go cut your own grass. If you are only going to accept what you already assume. Many do not change their priorities in light of what they hear in faithful churches, nor do they intend to. They just intend to keep on living like they're living because they think, well, I'm good enough and this sermon is really probably more for other people, but I'm fine. I'm one of the good ones. They simply interpret God's word in light of their own existing priorities. Well, we cannot think God and church are lucky we're just showing up three out of four weeks in a month. This was a problem in Jesus' day, just like it's a problem in ours. Remember the Pharisee? I thank God I'm not like other men. This is a Pharisee. This is a guy who would have made you look totally immoral. I thank God I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's moral in every area of his life. I fast twice a week. He's devout. He has more quiet times than you do. He has more self-control than you do. I give tithes of all that I get. He's generous. He fasts. He tithes. He polishes his morality. Even praises God for all of it. I praise you, God. You're the one who made me so great. So much better than this guy. Praise you, Lord. Jehovah, I am good. And it is all because of you. They do not know that they are doing evil. And he did not know that he was not the one who would go down justified. The tax collector would go down justified, not the Pharisee. You see, the Bible does not fear that we take God too seriously. 
You can't take God too seriously. He can throw you into hell. Our problem is that we don't take him seriously enough in his promises or in his threats. We don't take him up on his word enough, and our words to him in prayer are often not shaped by his words to us in Scripture. And that leads us to our third point of consideration. We need to be careful in our prayers. We need to be careful in our prayers. Prayers are the object in verses 2 to 3. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let, our hearts, let your hearts be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words, therefore, be few. Why should I be careful in how I come to public corporate worship? Why should I not be rash with how I speak to God? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. And that should be enough. Because transcendence. That's why. In other words, God is omniscient. I am ignorant. God is all-knowing. God's perspective is eternal. Mine is temporal. God is king. I am subject. God is praiseworthy. I am contemptible in my sin. God is creator. I am creature. God is holy. I am corrupt. He does not need me. I need him. If you come to worship without recognizing these fundamental truths about God and the differences between you and God, then you are in danger of offering the sacrifice of fools without even realizing that you are doing evil by being here. Now, maybe it makes some of us nervous when he says, let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, because that sure sounds like he might be contradicting a verse like Philippians 4, 6, and everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. I thought I was to pray about everything. And now the, the preacher's saying, nope, you better be careful about what you pray about. But as he makes clear in these next few verses in Ecclesiastes 5, what he's talking about here is not asking God for help and mercy and wisdom. He's talking about reducing my relationship with God to intimacy, closeness, friendship, while forgetting God's transcendence, his over and aboveness in relationship to me. As one theologian put it, God's goodness does not negate his greatness. We do well to remember it. Remember who you're talking to in prayer, in singing to, in song. Isn't this what makes the gospel so great? Look at the access you have to this great, transcendent, holy, other, omniscient, almighty, unflexibly righteous God. He is yours because of what Christ did on the cross. Don't abuse it. Don't abuse it. Don't take it for granted. Now look, if that kind of talk offends you, I'm not sure I can do much for you. This is what the Bible says. If you think, well, I just, I just want grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and all that. I like that side. Can't we just major on that? Well, I think we do. But you can't forget this stuff. You cannot preach grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and love to the exclusion of the God you're actually talking about who, whose mercy and compassion and grace you need because He's the kind of God He is in His holiness Righteousness, transcendence, greatness, and inflexible righteousness. That's why you need the whole other side. Because he does not change. Let your words be few. Man, I think, I think a lot of congregation members would like that to be their pastor's life verse. <laughs> Let your words be few. Hey, buddy, why don't you read your own Bible? Let's not misunderstand it. That does not mean that every public worship service should be limited to an hour because we only pray sentence prayers and preach sermonettes. Look at what comes next. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The concern is speaking lots of words from the source of your own dreams, assumptions, intuitions, ambitions, expectations, appetites, rather than speaking based on the fact that you first listen to God's word. God loves it. 
God never tires of it when we speak and pray and sing his word back to him and out to each other. Man, he loves that. That doesn't get old to him. He will listen to that literally for eternity. That's what heaven's going to be. What he doesn't love is when we talk and pray as if we think we know what God should be or want or do better than what his word has told us he is and wants and does. He doesn't like it when we act like we wish Ecclesiastes 5 were not in the Bible. That's what he doesn't like. Jesus was careful in his own prayers. You remember this, Hebrews 5, 7? Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of what? Of his intimacy? Of his divinity? He was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was reverent to God in his prayers. If there's anyone who could have depended on his intimacy with God, it was Jesus. But he was heard because of his reverence. His fear of God, his respect for God, his love of the way God revealed himself, his willingness to take God on his own terms, to obey God on his own terms, to suffer for God on God's terms. Friend, Jesus is the Son of God, and he is still reverent in his prayers. Are your prayers reverent? Are you careful not to offend God's holiness in the way you talk to him? Or are you perhaps a little too willing to give him a prayer lashing every once in a while when he doesn't meet your expectations? Fourth, we need to be careful in our promises. When you vow a vow to God, verse 4, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, we don't vow much today. Weddings, sworn testimony in court, Maybe a couple of other public occasions when we take vows. But we do give our word to God and to each other in local churches. We do covenant together in local churches. We make commitments about what we will believe and teach about God and Christ. How we will live before God with each other in local churches. So we take those things seriously. We take our statement of faith seriously. We take our church covenant seriously. Those documents are really just distillations of what the Bible teaches and commands us. That's one reason we periodically recite points from the statement of faith in our services, like we did this morning. We recite the church covenant at the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves and to recommit ourselves to the promises that we've made to God and to one another in joining this church so that our visible commitment to Christ's visible body matches what we say is our invisible commitment to the invisible God in Christ. Verse 4 assumes that we must and will make some sort of commitments to God in the context of corporate worship. And when we do, not if we do, but when we do, we should make good on them without procrastinating because God has no pleasure in fools. Not because it makes you look bad. Not because the church can't rely on you if you don't keep your word. It's because God doesn't take pleasure when you tell him you're going to do something and then you don't do it. Think of Jephthah's rash vow about his daughter in Judges 10 or Saul's rash vow about those who eat anything before he avenges himself, which ends up committing him to destroying his own son, Jonathan. God sees the foolishness of vowing and not making good on it. That doesn't mean you never make a commitment to God about what you'll do or give. It means that when you do make those inevitable Christian commitments, your commitment is something that honors God. And it's a commitment that you honor because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he has created us in his image. And he is renewing his image in his people so that we become covenant-makers and keepers. Like God is a covenant-maker and keeper. We reflect that back to him. 
and out to each other and to a watching world. Verse 5, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So notice he doesn't say, see, I think this is what we wish it said. We wish it said, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow. But it doesn't say that. It just says, better not to vow than to vow without making good on it. And what's best? What's best is not that you avoid all commitments for fear of breaking them. What's best is to commit and make good on that commitment. Be a man or woman who makes and keeps promises. That is a great part of what it means to be made in the image of God and to reflect His image. He commits to us, we commit to Him and each other. To not commit is to not love. You guys have heard me say this a lot. What if I said to my wife, ah, sweetheart, you know I love you, baby. Let's just keep it common law. Why have we got to get married? Why have I got to sign your piece of paper? Hmm? You think she's going to buy that? You think that's love? What's missing from that love? You're right. Commitment is missing from that love. Biblical love commits. Friend, are you keeping your word to God and to this church? Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Our mouths lead us into sin when we promise without performing and then excuse our unfaithfulness as just a mistake. Ah, oh, man, I just... Ah, oh, double booked myself. Ah, oh, did it all... You know. Do you see, too, here the connection between our words before God, our worship of God, and our blessing from God? God will be angry at our voice in prayer and song if we are indifferent to His voice in Scripture. He will destroy our work if we marginalize His Word. Now, you might be thinking, well, ah, boy, that sounds an awful lot like Old Testament logic. No, it doesn't. This is just biblical logic. This is exactly the logic that Paul uses with husbands in 1 Peter 3, or Peter uses in 1 Peter 3. It should remind you of that. It's the same thing. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. That's why. The same connection. If I don't take my vows to my wife seriously in the way that I treat her every day, the way that I talk to her every day, the way that I serve her every day, the way I help her every day, strengthen her every day, then God's not going to take my prayers seriously. That's how it works. That's New Testament logic, not just Old Testament logic. And while I'm on it, I do fear that too many of us husbands expect submission from our wives when we don't live with them in a very understanding way. And then we wonder why our prayers are not heard and why we have trouble sustaining a quiet time. Husband, consider your dear wife. Is she raising the kids without you? Cooking all the meals without you? Cleaning the house without you, doing the laundry without you, getting ready for hospitality without you, changing the diapers without you, putting the kids to bed all without you, lifting a finger because you think you worked all day and now it's time to relax? Now you're not getting what you're praying for. Yeah, there's a reason for that. That logic holds. Look, brother, she's the weaker vessel, not you. She's the weaker vessel. Ask your wife this afternoon if she thinks you live with her in an understanding way. I dare you. 
the answer will probably be humbling. And it'll be good for you. The same way, here in Ecclesiastes 5, make sure you're not walking around clueless in this church. You might be walking around clueless in your home because you think, oh man, sweetheart's got it. And she's dying inside. And she doesn't feel like she can talk to you about it. And you're walking around thinking, oh man, this is pretty great. I love marriage. Don't be clueless like that here either. Not keeping your commitments to the Lord and His people will move God to work against your work. You don't want that. Just as your treatment of your wife can forfeit God's answer to your prayers, so your treatment of God can forfeit His blessing on your work. Make sure you note those biblical connections in your life. So God is confronting cluelessness here in his own people. Verse 1, they don't even know they're doing evil. Verse 2, they're quick to make promises to God without realizing the accountability in the entails. Verse 6, we let our own mouths lead us into sin. And then we excuse it as a mistake. Verse 7, God can be angry at our voice because we didn't listen to his voice. And instead we approach him based on what we said we'd do for him, but then we don't deliver. You see how our own cluelessness in worship is another instance of the absurdity of life that Ecclesiastes is pointing out. And now he's pointing out, guess what? You're not just the victim, you're the perp. You're the one doing the absurdity, probably in your church. The senselessness of this world is not just around us. We're external to us, victimizing us. We ourselves contribute to the senselessness when we approach God in worship, in the church, and on the way to church. Vanity. That is vanity too. To approach God as if my relationship can be based on what I can or will do for Him. As if God should take me seriously before I can take Him seriously. As if others should do everything for me in the service of the church while I'm not willing to lift a finger. As if our word will determine how we approach God together instead of God's word determining how we will approach God together. To think that God should accept us on our terms and in our way rather than His. And it is the ultimate absurdity to call ourselves Christ's people and then not care about these dynamics at all. Fifth and finally, we should be careful in our piety, in our piety, in our godliness, in our fear of God. For when dreams increase, verse 7, and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. See, the more I base my words to God on my own fleeting thoughts and feelings, my dreams, my ambitions, the more vain and absurd my worship becomes. The more I try to base my relationship with a sovereign God on my own assumptions and my own control of my own life, and what I think I can do for Him, the more senseless my worship becomes to Him. And by contrast, the more my worship is based on the fear of God, listening to what He actually says about Himself and how to worship Him, the more ordered and sensible it becomes, not only to us, but to God Himself. God is the one you must fear. You see how there are only two options in verse 7 regarding the basis of your worship and relationship to the Lord. If you trust your dreams, assumptions, ambitions, experiences, background, traditions most, then you will encounter and cause absurdity for yourself in your own worship. If you fear God, if you take Him most seriously of all, then your worship will please Him, and that is the way to walk under His blessings in every other area of your life. And that's what we want for you. What we take most seriously is God and His Word about Himself, the world, and us. We don't fear God in the sense of feeling terrorized by Him. It is, though, a depth of reverence. We all have a healthy fear of fire, even though we love its warmth from the sun or in the fireplace. 
Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, quoting Deuteronomy 4. That's a comment on the intensity of his holiness and glory, but it's also a comment on his jealousy for our loyalty, worship, reverence, and love. He burns for you, for all of you, all the time. He burns for you. He wants every corner of your dark heart, and he will not rest until he has it. So we are in no position to bargain with this God or to manipulate him with our feelings or to play him over with our tactics or strategies. None of that. To fear God is to recognize that he holds all the cards and has all the leverage in his relationship with all of us. We cannot use him. We cannot deceive him. Can't correct him. Can't instruct him. This, this fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of wisdom. To not recognize God's sovereignty over all things is to stall out on the starting line of your relationship with him. You, you can't begin to be wise until you fear the Lord, until he's the one you take most seriously and until you believe everything he says about himself, even though it contradicts what you think he should be and what you thought he was. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. You either accept that about him and you submit to it and you make progress in knowing him and loving him for who he is. Or you chafe against that and you get nowhere. Look, you expect that of your children in your home, do you not? Hey, I'm the boss. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? I'm the boss. Mommy's the boss. Are you the boss, four-year-old? No, Daddy, I'm not the boss. Got it. All right. Then stop crying. Stop whining. Stop complaining. And you obey when I tell you no. Yeah, you think you deserve a juice box and cookies all the time, don't you? Yep, I do. Ice cream sandwich? All the time. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I want an ice cream sandwich. You know, I have an ice cream sandwich at 7.30 in the morning. Wah! Who's the boss? Look, that, it's the same thing, guys. You can't treat God like that. He is the boss. If every time I say no to my children, they say, you're mean, you're a bad dad, I don't like you. Well, you're living under my roof, son. So, I know you don't like cutting the grass, but here you go. It's time again. God, God didn't give me something that I wanted, or he took away something that I loved. I don't like him for that. Well, well friend, who's God? Who do you think knows better what you need? I get it. God's taken away things that I have dearly loved. I didn't want him to take them. I didn't like it that he took them away. But I got to trust that it was best for me, even though I don't really understand why he took those things away from me. Still, I can guess, but he doesn't owe me an explanation. And I got to still be an obedient son to him because I live in his world. He doesn't live in mine. Friends, I hope we can see now also the importance of a careful approach to God in public worship. I understand why we might want a casual approach to God. Casualness is a currency in our culture. It communicates that we don't take ourselves too seriously, that formality for its own sake is empty and inauthentic. It may even communicate that we don't take God too seriously, but oops, that's not a thing, is it? A laid-back, easygoing fear of God does not make sense. You, there isn't, there's no such thing as a laid-back fear of God. What, what do you mean? The fear of God cannot be casual or careless. 
It can wear a short sleeve shirt. It doesn't have to wear a suit. But it cannot be casual at heart or careless of mind or inattentive to God's ways. A nonchalant, easygoing, entertaining method in worship would be a perfect Trojan horse for the infiltration of absurdity into worship. That's how it gets in. Let's have a little more of a party church, a little more entertaining, a little more to look at, a little more fun. In fact, it's hard to deny that a lot of ridiculous things have infiltrated corporate worship services through a casual approach to God as a Trojan horse. You guys have been in some of those churches. Indifference to method is like a dissolving capsule that carries the infection of absurdity and makes it easier to swallow into the body of Christ. A casual approach, it tells us, we don't really need to guard our steps as we go to the house of God because God isn't that serious when in fact He is. He's more serious than you are about what we're doing right now. And with the fear of God, of course, we're right back where we started in verse 1. Jesus himself told his first disciples not to fear the one who can kill the body but do nothing to the soul, but to fear the one who can cast both soul and body into hell. Jesus said that. That's a New Testament verse. Fear him. Friend, do you fear God? Do you respect him for the authority that he would have to send you to hell? You should. Even if you're a Christian, our worship together as a Christian church should be marked by the fear of the Lord. That's the only way that any of us are going to grow in wisdom as a result of the ministry of this church is if we help you walk into the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. Our prayers for the church, our vision for local church life, our expectations and hopes for what we glean from the church, what we experience at church, what the church even becomes should all have their genesis in God's word it should all be subordinate to God's will and God's ways. It's this fear of the Lord that keeps our worship from degenerating into the same absurdity we see seemingly everywhere in the world we look around us. And when we fear the Lord, we do not approach Him based on our own track record of obedience or merit, as if the finite could satisfy the infinite. We realize that He's far too high and holy, far too righteous and pure for us to please in and of ourselves. It would be arrogant of me to think otherwise. We can only please Him if we approach Him in His authorized Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who drew near to listen to God's Word and to obey it even to death on a cross. Jesus is the one who paid what He vowed. At His Father's command, the Son vowed to give Himself for us. When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings... You have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. There it is. I've come to do your will. He committed. And he did it. He said when he walked on the earth, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He vowed it. He paid that vow in our place under God's wrath for our sins. He suffered the absurdity of a sinless victim punished ruthlessly on a Roman cross, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. And trusting in that sacrifice makes you careful about how you worship this God. Seeing how Jesus kept his commitments to God and to us makes us careful to keep ours to Him and to each other. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that even at our most careful We are not worthy to come into your presence except as clothed in the blood and righteousness of Jesus.
We confess that we have often taken your grace for granted because we have minimized your glory and our sin against it. Lord, we pray, may we take you seriously. May we fear you as you ought to be feared. And as we do, may we appreciate your grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness all the more because we know the kind of God you are. And we know what it took for you to offer us your forgiveness and to reconcile us. Do these things so that you would be magnified, so that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified in this church and others like it. For Jesus' sake, amen.